You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. On the last episode, I introduced you to the world of Woodrow the Wicked, the first part in my forthcoming young adult fantasy adventure novel. Woodrow is a young teen who has lost his cat on an island in a fantastical world filled with mystery and danger. He's just been taken prisoner by the island's sole inhabitants, a couple of degenerate salvagers but has proposed a deal in exchange for his freedom. Will Woodrow be eaten by a giant octopus monster? Will he find his cat Tamberline? What the heck has Tamberline gotten herself into anyway? On this episode of Lies and Half-Truths, part two of Cephalopod Sign. First, a short break. Stay with us. This episode's sponsor is the great young adult science fiction and fantasy writer, Sydney Swanson. We featured the first chapter of her excellent sci-fi novel, Saving Mars, on this podcast not too long ago. You can pick up that book and a lot more at her website, sydneyswanson.com that's c-i-d-n-e-y s-w-a-n-s-o-n dot com go check it out and now cephalopod sign part two so what do you propose I assume you have a diving helmet? Of course. Send me down there, and I'll talk to the Naomiho. Convince him to pick a different shell. He picks whatever one he wants, leaves you alone, and you leave him alone. Deal? Back up, kid. You wanna talk to the squid? Sure. I know a little Naomiho sign. Gravel throat and leather bag were silent for almost 15 seconds. What's the worst that could happen? Came the girl's voice from behind. She had been listening, unnoticed. If the Ceph eats him, you lose nothing. Gravel Throat just kept stroking her chins. After a moment, she said in the highest octave she could muster, Will you children please give us a moment of privacy so that we can discuss this? She smiled with her lips only. Fine, said the girl. Come on, I'll see to that cut.
cabin, the girl produced a box. It held some rolls of white gauze, a needle and thread, a glass bottle labeled XXX, and a bar of wax. So, they took a tithe from you, she said, sitting down across from Woodrow at a table. She took his hand a palm up. They tried that with me, the girl went on, uncorking the bottle of alcohol, but I told them to go jump in a rip current. She poured the clear liquid over the gash and dabbed it with cloth. Woodrow winced. Hurt? asked the girl. Nah, you, uh, you want to drift? Yep. She unrolled the gauze and tore it with her teeth. A drift like the rite of passage for the Roko clan sea lords? The girl smiled. You've heard of it? she said, wrapping the bandage around Woodrow's hand. Right of it. Your family must be in the privateer's guild. That means you have a tattoo of passage, right? Can I see it? No. Woodrow shrugged. That's too bad. I could have given you passage on my ship. The girl put one end of the wax bar into the flame of the candle sitting on the table. Maybe I'm just waiting to see if the giant hermit Seth eats you. What's the scam you're running here? Woodrow looked at her uncomprehendingly. What do you mean? The girl took the wax out of the flame and ran it over the bandage. You're not actually going to try to talk to it. What are you really up to? I am going to talk to it. What I'm up to is trying to save an innocent creature from getting blown up in its shell. Also, I'm trying to find my cat. She looked at him for a long moment, as if she were weighing his words for falsehood or stupidity or both. Don't trust those people, she said at last. Who? Those old people? I don't. Good, because they're not going to let you go, even if you uphold your end of the bargain. Woodrow rubbed the back of his neck. I'll figure something out. They're bad, trust me. I come from a family of privateers, so I know bad when I see it. What are you doing with them, then? She shrugged. The point of a drift is to learn virtue and villainy from the people who make their living off the sea, she said, as if reciting from memory. Well, you got the villainy part covered. The girl laughed. Woodrow liked the sound of it. Whatever you're up to, she said. You're ready to go. Once it sets, the wax will seal out the water and keep your bandage dry. Good luck. Tamberline was still wet. She still had sand irritating her in sensitive places. Her mouth was still dry from the seawater she had swallowed. In addition to all that, she was now out of breath, thirstier than ever, and hungrier. Also, she had twigs in her mane. She'd chased the seagull into the heart of the island, through the ever-thickening jungle. Many, many times, she had the bird within her reach, only to have her claws clap together. The gull would hop more than fly, cackling in a manner akin to the irritating sound humans made when amused. Tamberline wanted to crunch the bird's hollow bones between her jaws. She wanted to tear out his throat and taste his blood pulsing in her mouth, at first rapid with fear, then slower and slower as his eyes grew vacant. She found herself plunging out of the thicket into a shallow pool. On the other side, the earth rose in a rocky cliff, white water pouring down from it. She backed out of the water and sniffed the air, but heard the birds cackle before she smelled it. The bird stood upon a rock at the fountainhead, staring down at her. Tamberline looked around. She thought she might be able to climb a tree and from there leap to the gull's perch. But in the time it would take to get there, 
he would have surely flown. She sat and studied the bird. The gull cocked his head at her. He seemed to be making a study of her as well. A sudden gust of wind blew through the jungle leaves, tickling Tamberline's ears. She thought she heard a voice, a whisper in the wind. She blinked, and the gull was gone. Another gust tossed the jungle, and as if blown in on the current, the gull reappeared, not five feet from Tamberline. She blinked again. Now three gulls stood before her, identical in every way. The wind whispered at her once more. This time, she understood the words. I tire of this game, don't you? The voice was low as the roaring tide, but soft as the breeze it blew in on. The gulls blinked at her in unison. Let's change it up a bit. Which of the three gulls before you am I? You choose and pounce. I will hold still. The wind quieted. All three birds looked alike to Tamberline. But with the wind gone, she could use the most acute of her senses. She skewed up her muzzle and sniffed. The leftmost gull smelled as she had expected of salt water and salty air, except richer than it should. The middle and right gulls were all wrong, though. One smelled of mud, rust, decay, rotten fish, crabs, and algae. The other gull smelled of spice and metal, gold to be precise. It occurred to the great cat that this riddle might have broader implications than she first suspected. The diving helmet was sized a bit too generously for Woodrow's head, but the rubber flange around his neck and shoulders would seal against the water. He took it off. You're a fool to go down there without the rest of the diving suit, said Leatherbag. He took the helmet and attached it to the airline, fitting the two pieces together with a steel clamp that had to be tightened with a special tool. It'll limit my range of motion, Woodrow explained. I need my arms and legs to move freely, or I won't be able to do the cephalopod sign language. The girl crossed her arms and leaned against the outside wall of the ship's cabin. Cephalopod sign language? I thought that was just a story. I hope not. I spent a lot of time learning it, and if it doesn't work, the Nanomiho is likely to eat me. The youngsters laughed nervously. The old couple laughed too, but a little more heartily than Woodrow thought tasteful. I'll turn the air pump on. Soon as it's going, you can start your dive, said Leatherbag. He followed the air hose to the stern of the ship. Gravelthroat eyed Woodrow for a second. So, if you succeed in talking the monster out of his shell, you want what, exactly? I told you, all I want is to return to my ship and get off this island, the old woman scowled. That's it? I'm going to look for my cat first, and then I'm gone. Promise. I have no interest in your... Salvage. She squinted at the boy. Woman! Leatherbag called from the stern. I need you! Useless old man. Can't do anything without my help, the old woman said, and waddled off to assist her husband. They're not going to let you go, said the girl when the old woman was gone. I know. 
they'd just as soon cut your throat as reveal the location of this island to any outsiders. I gathered that. So what's your plan? Woodrow glanced at the old couple arguing over the air pump. Get off this boat, he told the girl in a low voice. As soon as you can. The girl's brow went tight. Trust me, said Woodrow. The sound of the engine firing up interrupted them. The old couple came shuffling back. Woodrow sat at the edge of the ship, feet dangling overboard, sandbags hanging from his ankles. The old man rested the diving helm on the crown of Woodrow's head. Don't try anything clever, boy. All we have to do is cut off your air. Woodrow ignored the threat. I'm ready. The old man pushed the helmet down over Woodrow's head. Woodrow could hear a faint hiss from the tube at the back of the helmet, and he took a breath to test the airflow. It seemed abundant enough. He signaled to the old salvagers and pushed himself off the side of the ship. The sandbags broke the water first, pulling him down, down, down. He descended in silence save the hiss of air pumping into the diving helm and the sound of his own breath. Schools of fish scattered around him in the quivering blue sunlight. He looked down into the shady water below, the shapes of iron masts, hulls, and gun turrets, rusted monuments of war and antique engineering genius rose up to meet him. He could see the Firebrand battlecruiser, surrounded by her one-time foes, now companions on the bottom of the sea. Sea plants grew from her hull, portholes, and gun ports. Inside the vessel's belly, Woodrow knew a tentacled giant lay curled up and hidden. In spite of his pretended confidence aboard the ship, the prospect of the sea beast emerging from his shell made Woodrow's heart race. In the stories about the Nanomiho, the tribes offered sacrifices to the great beasts. Human sacrifices. In exchange, the Nanomiho protected the islands, fighting off the invading northerners and their smoke-belching ships. The Nanomiho had taught the tribe's people a language based on tentacle gestures. The tribes adapted the language for the use of someone with only four limbs and performed it in mid-air while jumping from cliffs into the water. A single conversation would take a very long time. If Woodrow said the wrong thing, he wouldn't have a chance to clarify. Most likely, he would be gobbled up without ceremony. By the time Woodrow's feet touched the sand, he had a sick feeling in his stomach. What am I doing? He had taught himself cephalopod sign from a book in his father's library entitled Esoteric Languages and Ciphers. It was just something to occupy his time, something to file away along with other useless information, like the arcane names ascribed to the moon's continents. His father often told him to learn as much as he could because you never knew what would come in handy in a pinch. Tamberline narrowed her eyes at each of the gulls in turn. She looked at the pool. Fish danced here and there, beneath the rippled water, unaware of the contest beyond the glassy lens that sealed their world. When the moment she had been waiting for arrived, Tamberline pounced. The water leapt up around her with a smack.
A fish squirmed beneath her paw. She dipped her nose in and clamped down with her jaws. The fish wiggled in her grasp, but she held it firm, being careful not to break the skin. Tamberline came out of the pool, laid the fish before the seagulls, and bowed her head. The gulls blinked in unison. A burst of wind jostled the leaves. Thank you for listening to Cephalopod Sign, Part 2, on the Lies and Half-Truths podcast. This story was written and performed by A.P. Weber. The music was provided by Mackenzie Stubbard, and Josiah Martins wrote the theme song. Meg Weber produced the show along with me, your host, A.P. Weber. I'd like to invite you to get in touch with us. You can email your feedback to truesandhalftruths at gmail.com. Of course, we're on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is at APWeber. In particular, we'd be interested in hearing from other writers who want their work to be featured on a future episode. The email again is truesandhalftruths at gmail.com. Also, please consider reviewing this show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you found it. Thanks. On the next episode of Lies and Half-Truths, Cephalopod Sign, Part 3, in which Woodrow is eaten by giant hermit Seph. No, really, this time he is. Could happen. You won't know unless you listen. Listen.